you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Brian Kaplan, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University. Brian is working on a book about the causes of poverty, so we began by asking about which policy interventions reliably help developing countries develop, which turns out to be a difficult question. And then after a detour via charter cities, we hear about the case for open borders, and we spend some time discussing immigration reform. After that, we get Brian to revisit an article he wrote about the likelihood of stable global totalitarianism. Um, And then the last half an hour is just kind of all over the place. We talk about the case for having or even subsidizing more kids, uh, research Brian would like to see, what the philosopher Michael Humer gets right, the science of persuasion, and Brian's favorite musicals. Um, There's some provocative stuff here, so you certainly do not have to agree with everything. But if you don't, I think it's still valuable to hear from perspectives you don't end up agreeing with, if only so you can better understand why you don't agree. Anyway, without further ado, we began by asking Brian to introduce himself and say what problem he was currently stuck on. Um, I'm Brian Kaplan. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University. I'm the best-selling author of Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. I've also written several other books, including The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and The Case Against Education. In terms of problems that I'm stuck on right now, the last one that's really been weighing on me is getting the very best measures that I can of the effect of economic policy on economic growth. So I had some priors on this, and then when I started reading the actual research, I was finding the research to have conflicting answers, in particular Some papers were thinking of economic policy as affecting the rate of growth, others as affecting the change in the rate of growth. And after I got through that, I just felt like I needed to go back and think a lot more about it. And I'm guessing this has to do with your upcoming book, uh, Poverty, Who's to Blame? Uh, That is correct. Well, this seems like a great place to maybe start off the interview then. Uh, And can I just ask the question, right? Like, who is to blame? Or what do you mean by blame when we're talking about poverty? Uh, Right. So I know you've got a big effect of altruism slant to this. And really, the start of the book begins with at least a lack of full commitment to effective altruism because I take seriously the idea of blame and moral blameworthiness. And of course, this does conflict with the idea of just helping wherever you can get the most value out of it. So see, there is a moral intuition saying that sometimes as a person, you're very able to help them, but because what they have done is their own fault, it is at least supererogatory, above and beyond the the call of duty for you to go and assist them. And again, this is sort of out of step with effective altruism. And yet when you do read the book, there is a strong effective altruism component to it because part of what I do in the book is try to figure out, well, what are the actual biggest causes of avoidable poverty? And then there's the secondary question question of whose fault is that, which then does put the onus of reform, of personal reform or institutional reform on those that are morally to blame for it. Uh, the main things that I talk about in the book, are you know, most of them are ones that would be very standard for effective altruists. So I spend a lot of time on a bad economic policy. So we, you know, we know them when we see them. We know that Venezuela has terrible policies. We know that the Soviet bloc had terrible policies. And on the other hand, there's some countries that are noted for having very good policies like Hong Kong or Singapore. And yet 
there's still the question of what policies actually are best for growth. A lot of my thinking there is at least there is a list of policies that are so obviously terrible that when countries have them, even though the evidence is in, it is very blameworthy on the parts of those governments for having those policies. And inspiring a lot of this book was a couple of papers by Saxon Warner from the mid-90s where they actually made up this list of especially asinine policies, which if you, as long as you avoid them, you have a near guarantee of getting economic growth. Uh, so that's anyway, part of what I'm doing there. Then I have another section that revisits my interest in immigration. So this is the second point of avoidable poverty. Well, so much poverty could be avoided if people could just leave poor countries and get a job in rich countries. And then the part that is only the last third of the book, but it's the one that generally gets the most attention, is where I talk about the effect of personal responsibility or lack thereof on poverty. And I do say there is a lot of evidence that not just something like, well, why don't you cure cancer and you'll be rich? You know, like, you know, well, really, that's very helpful. But very basic responsible behaviors that almost anyone can, is capable of doing are, in fact, uh, you know, you know, in fact, important causes of not being poor. And for those, I do stick my neck out and say that there are some cases where it is reasonable to blame a person for their own poverty. And one effective altruist might just say, fix the problem, not the blame. I do say, like a minimum when we are doing triage for who to help first. It makes sense to go and help people who are uh, who are suffering through no fault of their own. And then there is even the deeper question of, look, suppose that you've solved all the other problems, but someone keeps acting in a very responsible way. Is it reasonable for you to say, that's too bad and that's on you? Fantastic. So we have maybe three components. One is development policy mm-hmm. in developing countries. Yes. The other is immigration policy in rich countries. And some kind of ethics style question about well, I mean, you can think about it as, as personal policy, life policy, right? So if you're into effective altruism, then you probably aren't so far away from life coaching. In a way, this you can think of this as the life coaching section of the book and saying, here's a good way to get out of poverty. And a, a lot of this is inspired in particular by a body of work on what they call the success sequence, which just says this, like, as long as you are in a rich country and you do three simple things, your odds of being below the poverty line is extremely low. And the three simple things are first, finish high school, second of all, work full time, and third, don't have kids until you're married. Mm -hmm. And do those three things, and your odds of being in poverty are extremely low. Of course, a hardcore social scientist will say, well, we haven't run the randomized experiment where we randomly go and make people have have kids in or out of wedlock. Uh, But... These are ones where the mechanics are so straightforward about how it is that it would mess up your life. I put this almost in the category of does burning your money make you poor? Yeah, yeah. And I'm very keen to delve into these three topics in more detail uh, in just a second. But if I'm understanding this right, then at least when you're talking about the success and things, you're talking about poverty, as you said, kind of in developing or in rich countries. Whereas these first two arguments about developing policies in developing countries and then also immigration from poor to rich countries, this is more than looking at the third world or, or how do you see this? Yeah, so I think I think that's very fair. So I mean, like, so stepping back, I, mean, I, I will focus on the third world because that's where the desperate poverty really is. Yeah. But I'm definitely going to also talk about poverty-inducing policies that are quite straightforward that are common in first world countries. Right now, the one that I'm also simultaneously writing a book on is on housing policy. Yeah. And so we can see that housing regulation in first world countries, not just first world countries, but mm. notably in first world countries, is extremely strict. And this is something where, first of all, housing is such a large part of the budget that any, even a moderate increase in the cost due to regulation is actually causing noticeable impoverishment. 
And then secondly, most estimates of how bad housing regulation is say that it is not just leading to a 10% increase in housing costs, but maybe more like a doubling or a tripling of housing costs. And then when you put this together and realize that the share that people spend on housing is much higher for the poor, then you realize that these are, again, highly avoidable policies yeah, with, yeah. with quite clear-cut effects that countries have anyway, which you can then say is very culpably causing mm. poverty. Okay, great. And if we have time, love to jump into some nimbyism. Uh, Well, let's delve into these three topics bit by bit. So the first one that you pointed out is kind of um, developing policies or economic policies in developing countries. And you said right at the start of this interview that you are currently working on like trying to understand what good policy is and that you've changed your mind like a little bit here as well, looking at the literature. Can you maybe explain first what your impression was going in and now what you're kind of seeing is the, the secret success or like the successful policies for countries? Right. So when I started, I was very much thinking in terms of different indices of economic freedom, which do show that the countries that are rated as most economically free have much higher levels of income. And on the other end, the countries that are rated as least free are generally desperately poor. Right. And then I'd also seen results saying that in addition, economic freedom is good for economic growth. And that's where I was surprised when I found that among people working on this, some were saying, yes, it is good for economic growth. And others were saying, no, you actually have to increase your measure of, econ- of economic freedom in order to get growth. Yeah. So when I say, huh, well, that's not really what I was originally thinking. Now, you know, one possibility is the indices just aren't very good measures of what we're talking about anyway. I mean, generally, I have been much fonder of narrowing it down to more specific policies, yeah. things like housing regulation or immigration policy or education, where I think that we can get a clearer handle on exactly what's going on and exactly where the waste is coming from. So I do feel like now I've got to go back and just read more widely on this general question of different indices of overall economic policy and whether they really actually are good measures what we're talking talking about. So in the end, it's not that I'm going to come away and saying it turns out Venezuela has good policy or something (laughs) like that. But in terms of the way in which countries that we think of as just being economically free or really are in a reasonable sense such or or to the extent to which that actually is better for growth. That's where I just feel like I need to go back and read more. Yeah. And this seems to be like a struggle as well, right, within the economics profession. So one of the papers that I remember from my kind of undergrad is this Hausman, Pritchard and Roderick paper, I think from 2004 or so, where they were looking at trying to see, right, like in this like big pool of I think 80 or so uh, kind of like growth accelerations, what were like the common things. And one of the things that they concluded is there really just aren't that many, right? And it seems to be like a really hard question to answer what can cause these like big growth accelerations that we've seen in countries like China or or where kind of have you. Um, Yeah, but I'm I'm just curious to see um, what policies in particular do you see as like maybe most optimistic or where would you like to maybe see more research being done as well? Right. So some that uh, that I've been thinking about a lot, uh, there's been some very interesting research on managerial quality done by people like John Van Rienen. And one of the main things that is, first, they tried to come up with a very common sense list of what are good and bad managerial practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, not like should you have like a Japanese firm where the manager works in the center or whether he should have a separate office, but things more basic like keeping track of inventories, avoiding nepotism, pay for performance. So they came up with this list of managerial practices, and they did very large international surveys, and they got a bunch of very striking results. So some of them are very common sense, saying that firms that do follow these common sense practices are indeed more productive. But then they actually came up with some other results, which in a way aren't so surprising, but they're quite striking. What's really striking is that firms in rich countries are considerably better managed than, than firms in poor countries. 
And in poor countries, you'll see that bad management is really the norm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, nepotism, not keeping track of inventories, not having quality control, lacking paid performance. These things are all very common. But there's a very interesting exception, which is multinational corporations. Multinational corporations are well managed everywhere. And this is not because they are managed by foreigners. Rather, foreigners come and they sort of download the software into the locals. And then there's sort of a continuous effort to keep them on the same page by keeping them part of the same corporation. But this does strongly suggest that you could get a very large gain in productivity by having multinationals take over the entire global economy. And again, not the thing that people want to hear, and yet something that effective altruists should definitely be interested in is realizing, look, multinationals are really good. It's no, you know, There's the basic point of they are the best places to work for in poor countries. But there's the deeper point of they actually are raising productivity and not by a small amount, raising productivity by a lot and spreading knowledge of not just better technology, which is sort of the easy kind of knowledge that we let everyone agrees, yes, some technologies are better, but of managerial technology, what is the right way to run a firm? What is the best way to organize people? You know, so no, there is no I in team. Yeah, and yeah. just going and bringing this to the world as a kind of insight about the best way to organize the world for human betterment, right? And then you realize what's striking is that so many poor countries, especially, either directly try to keep out multinationals or they just impose extra official burdens on them. Or a minimum, there's just an extra list of unofficial burdens, like you don't have the right connections to avoid paying bribes and that kind of thing. So that's definitely something that I was going to be, and I plan to be talking about quite a bit in the book. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that you kind of mentioned here, I guess the implications, right, for within effective altruism. Definitely like in the early days, as you might be aware, there was like a big focus on like and direct like anti-poverty measures. So malaria nets um, and these kind of like global health and development things. And now there is definitely a look or like an exploration to what are like these broader structural changes you can do. And as you said, I guess implications here would be opening up to trade, deregulation, financial liberalization, these things. And now trying to see what the evidence is there and what implications that might be. Right, right. And especially the kinds of deregulation where there's a very clear mechanism that connects the deregulation to something to, to big improvements against things like housing regulation, yeah. where, I mean, I'm talking about it for first world countries, but India has some of the strictest housing regulation in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read the blog Margin Revolution, there's the story of a building that keeps getting built illegally, and then the government uh, takes in the court to say that it's been built illegally, and then they fight it out in court as long as they can, and then they're forced to knock it down, and then they start rebuilding it immediately after it's knocked down. But this is a story, but it actually is very reflective of Indian housing policy, mm-hmm. where in a country where homelessness is rampant, indeed, if you use a first world definition of homelessness, then it's very plausible that a third of India is homeless, yeah. because first world definition of homelessness is fairly expansive, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you if you sort of take our definition and move it over there, then you have an enormous homeless population. And yet there is a pile of regulation that makes it very difficult to construct homes, mm. right? And this is one where I would just say it's very straightforward as to how it would work and what it would accomplish. And we have a good understanding of what happens when you deregulate housing, namely people keep building housing until the prices have fallen back down to cost of construction. Yeah, yeah. Um, in contrast, you know, other kinds of deregulation, like you're mentioning finance, where it's actually really complicated. And yeah, yeah. as to what the effects are, I will say I'm at least confused. Mm. Housing, I'd feel very solid. Okay. Like you let people build skyscrapers and <laughs> in big cities and you will get a lot more housing and housing prices will go down. Mm. Financial regulation is one where, well, maybe it would all work out in the end, but it's just not as clear. And at least I would say, and again, going back to the point of triage, it's just, to my mind, a much lower priority. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about 
policies you're mentioning there where it seems like there's a pretty clear mechanism for how they would be like good to implement and when they're not implemented it's not clear how anyone wins out there's a pretty obvious question which is why aren't they already implemented what's going on right so if you look at most of my work it comes down to saying the public is wrong about a lot of things. The public's wrong about immigration. The public's wrong about education. The public's wrong about housing. And then you may say, gee, like how can so many people be so wrong so much? And fortunately for me, my very first book was actually a meta answer to all of this. My first book is The Myth of the, Ra- the, Myth of the Rational Voter, Why Democracies Choose Bad Policies. And this is a whole exploration of not only why it's possible for bad policies to be popular and socially destructive policies to be popular, but why it's actually quite normal. And it really does come down to politics is mostly religion. It is not a sincere effort to calmly understand the world. Rather, it is a set of poetry that gives people meaning. And if you have poetry giving you meaning, you don't often ask, yes, but is it literally true? Should we actually be taking this seriously and doing what it says? And yet the funny thing about democracy is that when you act upon views that are ill-founded, As an individual, the consequences to you are basically zero. You could vote for the worst policies in the world. And what happens to you is the same thing would have happened to you anyway, Mm. because you're just one little person. Contrast this with going to the grocery store. If you put the worst purchases you can into your cart, you are wasting all of your money. Mm. But if you go and vote for all the worst possible policies in the world, you have not changed much of anything except with a very tiny probability. So what I say is that built into democracy are these very bad incentives. And then furthermore, just to understand how these incentives work, I tie this in very much with the role of betting in getting people to actually think seriously about their beliefs. So I'm a big proponent of betting. And I have a public bet wiki that you can go mm-hmm. and Google and you can see all the bets that I've made. Now, the interesting thing about being someone who, try, who makes bets about substantive questions that people actually care about is that people normally speak rashly Mm. about politics. And then when you offer to bet them on the rash statements, uh, normally they run in terror. (laughs) They do not want to bet on their rash statements. Or if they do, they want to bet on something that has very little to do with what they actually said. So Mm. someone may say, it is absolutely certain that Hillary Clinton will be the next president. I read an op-ed that said this back in 2008. So she lost then, and she lost eight years later. So not absolutely certain. But anyway, if you really were absolutely certain, then you should be willing to bet at 10 to 1 odds, 100 to 1 odds. And yet, as you might guess, it is pretty much impossible to get anyone to go and give very serious odds for bets because it's not so much that I think people are lying as that they are expressing themselves impulsively. So it feels sincere at the time. And yet there is a deeper sense in which people realize that these views are bogus, fake, Hmm. not properly thought out. They're not the kinds of things that you would want to bet your life on, not the kinds of things you want to bet $100 on even. And also, when I'm betting public figures, they don't want to bet their reputations on it. Uh, So that's where the myth of rational voter, I think it's really the clearest sign of the responsiveness of rationality itself to incentives is that people will actually run away from things that they seem to sincerely believe just moments before Mm -hmm. once you put your money out on the table. 
One thing I wanted to pick up before where you were talking about this like myth of the rational voter. So I find this really interesting when we're thinking about policies in developing countries, because it kind of goes against one of the narratives that you often hear, especially in kind of like popular media and stuff, which is if we just got like some institutional reform done or if these countries just opened up and became more democratic, then this could be solved. But you're really kind of, I think, saying here that even if a country is democratic, that is not going to ensure that they have good policies. And there seems to me like some kind of tension here with like new or neo-institutional economic literature. So like why nations fail as more glue, Johnson Robinson, this kind of stuff. Uh, can you talk about this a little bit as well? Yeah, definitely. So, of course, I don't think any sober person would say that democracy ensures good policy. <laughs> um, but I would go further and say it's very little reason for optimism at all. Yeah. The, you know, the only cases where I'm optimistic about democracy is if you have a cult of fanatics that currently is ruling a country, and then you switch from that to democracy. Yeah. Then, okay, that's an improvement. Because it's not just dictatorship, it's dictatorship by a cult of fanatics. On the other hand, if you go from having a sober, moderate monarchy yeah. that is nevertheless running the country to democracy, that's where I will honestly say I'm not even confident things will improve at all. Yeah. Things could easily actually get worse. I have, in fact, several times asked people, so what would happen to Saudi Arabia if it became a democracy? Mm. And almost everyone's familiar with it just gets a look of terror on their faces. And it's <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe it could work. Okay. (laughs) I think I knew it could maybe work before, but what will happen? Tell me that. Right. So my understanding of the research on the effect of democracy versus dictatorship on policy is that dictatorship is more of a gamble. Dictatorship has higher variance. But in terms of mean performance, it is not clear that democracy has higher mean performance than dictatorship. It avoids Mm -hmm. the very worst things. Now, this is mostly for economic policy. I do tend to think there's more to the idea of democracies not fighting each other. I know there is some revisionist stuff saying it's really caused by some extraneous factor, although still just the, uh, the pattern of very few democracies fighting each other. I mean, again, I think, you know, it's not as strong as it seems. Like, I think you could plausibly say that uh, Germany in 1914 was pretty close to a democracy, or you know, at least you know, in the ballpark of democracy, and yet World War I did happen. Uh, but still, the general point of democracies don't fight each other, so that's, I would count that as a mean improvement for them. Yeah, yeah. So you do have that. So probably in the end, I would say there is a modest improvement, in, a modest advantage of democracy over dictatorship in general. Yeah, but yeah. again, the big gain just comes from not having a cult of fanatics rule a country, because cults of fanatics... Uh, first of all, they don't get elected democratically in the first place, generally. Yeah, yeah. They're just too weird, right? So the whole idea is you get, you get elected in democracy by moderating and toning it down and trying to appeal to a broader group and, and not seeming super scary. Yeah, But yeah, yeah. Uh, although you may eventually manage to weasel your way into dictatorships from democracy. Uh, but in any case, uh, like, you know, what cultural fanatics do when they rule countries has been quite terrible, as you probably know. So Yeah. It's interesting. I guess it links to maybe this comment you had on these like triages of policy, right? Where housing policy has like a very clear direct channel and I guess makes it somewhat easier to study and find robust empirical results to it. Whereas democracy or like type of government, these like big questions, it's harder to get like any tractable um, empirical work here. Right. And there's also this catch-22 problem, which is like, I think I know a good way to go and get housing policy to improve. Mm -hmm. How about we say that you need a 99% vote to stop housing project? (laughs) All right. Well, I think that would actually improve policy but then there's the question, yes, but how do we get people from here where we are to this new institutional change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there is this hope in institutional economics 
probably largely fostered by James Buchanan himself, mm-hmm. that, oh, well, we'll be able to get a unanimous agreement at the meta level. And not only do I not see any sign that you can get a unanimous agreement at the meta level, I don't see that it's easier to get agreement at all at the meta yeah, level. This was yeah. just an odd fantasy that he had based upon no empirics or anything, more of just armchair philosophy. Mm. And one last thing to flag for me as well. So I mentioned this Hausman paper before, right? And one of the interesting results there is I think they only really found two things that are like significantly related to like boosting these, these growth accelerations. One was financial liberalization. But as you said, it can be difficult to like maybe um, be assured that this will work. But the other thing is, and this is like kind of uncomfortable, that like a move to autocracy does also like raise the probability of having these growth accelerations. And I think that at least should like make us think about that the evidence is not so clear cut and that we should maybe reflect more. Right. Although also possible to get a growth deceleration from of that. Course. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's what this other work saying, you know, dictatorship is a big gamble, mm. right? So like, even if everything else about it is on average the same, but still the chance that you get a psychopath in power and yeah. then things are terrible. Yeah. I want to clarify this point you're making about democracies. If voters voted in line with what you might describe as their like true preferences, as revealed by the choices they make, in that case, it sounds like you're pro-democracy. The problem is the layer between voting and true preferences or something. Right. Well, so I would say that actually built into democracy is that you are not being called upon to express your true preference. Rather, you're being asked to say what sounds good to you. So I'm very fond of the slogan, actions speak louder than words. And I would say democracy is always words. It's always words. Uh, if you, well, what would be the difference? Well, the difference would be, say, moving to a country's policy you like. That's one where, by your action, you change what policies you have. I go from, say, Virginia to Texas during COVID because the policies of Texas were less odious than those of Virginia. That is something that I did, by the way. So there I voted with, I voted with my feet, as they say, but really it isn't voting at all. I just moved. And in so doing, I, I said, look, you know, my actions show that I actually care, that I actually prefer this. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the other hand, when you ask Pete, when you, when you're voting is just saying, well, what sounds better to you? And yes, the problem is that very often what is good sounds bad and what sounds bad is good, right? That's really, really a fundamental problem with, with the world. It sounds much better just to give everybody what they need, mm-hmm. but it is better to charge people for things, right? So that system actually works better. But nevertheless, I don't know any place in the world where there's the idea of, well, I'm just so thrilled by the idea of paying money for goods and services. This is a great system. On the other hand, the poetry of free is very strong. It feels like you're saying something quite strong here because it sounds like you're saying it doesn't make sense that anyone should vote sincerely or in line with their considered beliefs rather than to make some kind of poetic noise. But what would I'm I sure say, some people say, do. Say, some people really do, yes. do spend time mm-hmm. to come up with some kind of considered vote. And often it's not in line with their peers, so they're paying some reputational costs. It sounds to me like in those cases that they're, they're doing the right thing. Maybe it's just rarer than you would hope. Right. So, you know, like, it is logically possible for a person to always vote for that which they would, in fact, choose if they were decisive. But I just say it's very unusual. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you know, a person could be extremely scrupulous and, they, and every word they say has to be literally true. Right. But this is you know, possibly just inhuman. Right. Or you could say at least it's Vulcan to use the analogy that Jason Brennan likes. Right. So, yes, you know, yeah, logically it's possible, but. OK, I mean, take an example of a at least professed religious zealot who says mm-hmm. they care deeply about mm-hmm. God and they don't go to church very often. Yes. <laughs> Sounds to me like you would say, well, in fact, as revealed by the way you behave, yes. you don't care so much about God. Yes, yes. What about another story, which is mm. 
No, in fact, you do care about God. Maybe you're being sincere. Certainly it feels like you care about God and that's enough to care about God. It just happens that people are also kind of messy and inconsistent and it's hard to line up your behavior perfectly in line with your, your beliefs. So both stories mm-hmm. are right in this sense. Well, it's hard to line up your behavior perfectly. This would be like someone who says that their religion is the most important thing in their lives, misses church twice a year. And then there's the person who says the most important thing in their life and they never go and they never read any religious literature. And this is not just a lack of imperfection or things are a little messy. This is, there is a chasm between what you do and what you say. And I'd say, well, I don't have telepathy. I can't really get inside your head. Maybe you have the belief that going to church would actually cause other people to stop going to church. And uh, But the most reasonable story is you are, in fact, insincere. And there's superficial insincerity where you're thinking, I'm now going to tell a lie. Wahaha. And then there's the more common kind of insincerity where you just open up your mouth and blurt out whatever you want to say without fact-checking it. Yeah, so one case you can make for democracy is in terms of its effects over the very long run, where at least I have some impression that democracies tend to be more stable when you're thinking about timescales of decades and centuries. So even if you kind of have this you know, evidence about growth on shorter timescales, are you missing something quite important there? And is there any kind of indication that that's, that's correct? Yeah, so quite possibly. I guess the main issue is just that the day that we're thinking about comes from this age of modernization when a bunch of other things are happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it would have been true historically that, dicta- that uh, democracies were more stable than dictatorships. Uh, there were just more civil wars. And you know, at least my view is that when, life, when, when incomes are low and life is cheap, that people are just willing to take risks that they will not take in richer countries. So that's sort of my general picture about the evolution of war overall is I say like the real danger of a terrible war comes when you've got modern technology, but you still have pre-modern attitudes because you haven't had a couple of generations of living in nice, comfortable, safe conditions. And I think that's really what happened in World War I and II is um, – and why we've had peace since is at least my favorite story. And again, probably something similar is going on in earlier times. I think part of – a lot of the instability is just from greater poverty, which means people are willing to take greater – greater risk to life and limb in order to seize power. And then generally in the 20th century, it has been poorer countries that have, been dicta- that have started out as dictatorships, and then not too surprising that they have l- lower stability and people more willing to go and fight civil wars in order to get control. Mm-hmm. As to how much of it is dictatorship and not, or, or dictatorship versus democracy specifically, saying, you know, it is just a hard question. I mean, it's, it's, it's poss- possibly right. I mean, there is this classic story saying that in a democracy, if there's a, if there's a large dissatisfied group, they can just get power. At least they have the hope of getting power but by, at the next election. So they don't need to go and do a violent struggle in order to get power. Whereas in dictatorship, you really do need to do that. Although that's not even really true for dictatorships. You could just say, hey, we've got a big power base here. You better start accommodating us. Uh, but maybe you might say democracy is just a cleaner more reliable method for doing that. And, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's plausible. Yeah. Um, now, this doesn't really help that much for is democratization going to help things because it's very easy to see democratization, you know, especially from a stable dictatorship leading to a period of chaos and leading to disaster. So, I mean, if you're going to think about the, you know, the Shah of Iran, in the early periods of his fall, there appears to be democratization. And then, of course, it descends into what I think we can fairly call a totalitarian state, Mm. uh, which we're still stuck with uh, right now. 
Yeah, Arab Spring, yeah. maybe similarly. Yes, it's kind of yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. To actually think seriously about sticking up for democracy. Right. I mean, the thing we can fairly say is that stable democracies will tend to be stable. <laughs> right. And so countries that have been democracies for 100 years are unlikely to descend into dictatorship or civil war or anything really terrible. In terms of ones that ever ever have like ones that have had stable democracy for a lot of decades and then have and then have collapsed, that actually is really rare. As to whether there's any good examples of it, actually, I mean, you might bend things and say Venezuela actually counts, although probably not. And then as to what other ones you would even say, it's not too clear. Again, like Hungary, it's far from clear that they've totally strayed from democracy. Like there could easily be another election where the ruling party actually loses and walks away. That would not be in no way shocking. Mm. The other thing is they did not have decades of stable democracy, right? So they had maybe 15 years. Yeah, so I'm curious to maybe get a better understanding of where do you see the main benefits of democracy coming from then, um, presuming that that is kind of, um, at least to some extent, your mm-hmm. opinion. We've talked about stability mm-hmm. here a lot, mm-hmm. and I kind of mentioned earlier in this podcast um, that at least one paper also finds that autocracy, right, kind of mm-hmm. boosts growth, somewhat correlated mm-hmm. with the stability here as well, that at least when you have like a lot of civil wars and a lot of like changing democracies, mm-hmm. sometimes um, a slight move to autocracy can create that stability. But on the longer term, it might be democracy here that mm-hmm. is more important. Outside of stability, um, do you see like any benefits that democracy has as well? Right. So again, just you know, avoiding the rule of a cult of fanatics, right, with their murderous ways. This is very big. I mean, like the Amartya Sen stuff on democracies almost never have famines that kill lots of people. You know, he's probably overstating a bit, but still the basic point seems sound. Democracies don't fight each other. Again, the, somewhat disputed and, re, and probably overstated, but still the basic pattern seems to be there. I mean, as to whether it really is democracy costly or not, at least it seems reasonable to think that's part of the story. So, you know, I won't even put myself in the one cheer for democracy group, maybe half a cheer or like a... <laughs> good, good. Brian Kaplan, half a cheer for democracy. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so maybe one last question to ask on this topic of development policy in low-income countries is if it's very difficult to change policy on a large scale, are there things that look like smaller scale or keyhole or experimental ways to implement good policy or at least different experiments, which can then be scaled up? And in particular, I have in mind something like Charter Cities. Right. As to how difficult it actually is to change policy in third world countries, I think it's actually quite a bit more complicated. Of course, there's the point of well, if we could go and convince people that a different policy was good, then I think policy would change fairly quickly. But also, there are some policies, that, uh, changes that have been dramatic on somewhat more technical points. And it really seems like all that was necessary was just to get someone in charge who had a strong, who was strong-minded and was determined to do it. So in particular, I'm thinking about how the country of Georgia managed to move from being one of the most corrupt countries on earth to being at least about average. Mm-hmm. Got the story from someone who knew a lot of the details. And at least his version, which seemed very credible, was a new guy was put in charge of dealing with corruption, and he just started very harshly punishing all cases of corruption. And that was all it took, right? So economists say, oh, it's so complicated. Like, it's not complicated, it's harsh. And all that it seemed to really take for this to happen was for a guy in charge of corruption to be extremely determined to go through with it. And I think actually a lot of policy reformers like this, when people say, oh, it's so complicated, the real problem is the kind of person that gets the job is not the kind of steely person that is willing to actually go and follow through with a policy where the people complain about. So mm-hmm. I think that anyway, at least that's often worth talking about. 
But, yes, you were talking about Charter City. So, funny story. Um, some years ago, the Bill Gates Foundation emailed me and they said, all right, we're going to spend some money. We've already decided what to do. But after we decide this, then we invite critics to go and tell us something else that we should have done instead. Mm-hmm. So we want you to go and write a piece saying that we should have done Charter Cities. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, fine. And then I wrote a memo quite strongly criticizing the Gates Foundation decision because they went and said, we're going to spend the money funding pro-poor organizations. And I said, this is worse than nothing because just because you say you're a pro-poor organization does not mean that you know how to reduce poverty. In fact, I think probably most pro-poor organizations so-called are pushing for policies that are going to make poverty worse. But anyway, I did say charter cities would be a better idea. And probably your readers are familiar with the general picture, but Hong Kong is almost an example where you have a small area of a country that is has a separate system of law and it is run in a totally different way than the rest of the country and then you see what you can do right and as you may know uh, British Hong Kong was not democratic there was just a British governor who then went and imposed a very laissez-faire policy on them and Hong Kong did go from the depths of abject poverty to becoming one of the world's richest countries under these policies so anyway the hope is to make dozens hundreds of Hong Kongs Go and get countries that are currently wallowing in poverty and say, let's just give us 30 square miles of land and let us do something different on it and exempt us from the laws of your country for 99 years, say, right? And no one has managed to get this off the ground yet, but there's still, uh, there's a bunch of efforts going on or things that seem like they might come to fruition. Yeah. And if you can make it happen, great. In terms of going for the gold, trying to actually get something that not only works out really well, but inspires a lot of other good stuff, as you might think that Hong Kong did. Partly it depends on just the personality of the person pushing it. Some people are better at going for the gold and other people are better at trying to push governments to mend their ways. So probably a good thing for this to all be going on at once. Roma, right, has famously tried to get yes. the cities off the ground for a while, and especially in Madagascar, uh, where I think it backfired. And, and, and Honduras. And Honduras. Yeah, yes. Honduras, right, where it's, where it's possibly like more optimistic of kind of working. But like, it seems like a tricky question, right? Where like a lot of the evidence in favor, as you said, comes from these like half charter cities. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong, Shenzhen is like mm-hmm. the other famous mm-hmm. example. And there are like three ways maybe that we try to like hope that this works. One is like the direct benefit of just having a city with a lot of economic activity. Mm-hmm. The second channel then maybe being that if you have one good city that attracts a lot of like maybe international, multinational businesses. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned previously as well, that spills over and helps the host country as a whole. And then third, also this thing of like maybe getting value of information, right? Mm-hmm. That if you can experiment yeah. with different yep. policies in one space, we're getting closer to this like RCT uh, empirical evidence that you mentioned. Um, but I'll also just flag that there was like a report recently by David Bernard and Jason uh, Shoecraft, um, kind of looking into this and kind of noting how difficult it is to maybe generalize from some of this evidence as well, that there's lots of reasons why... Uh, in China, Shenzhen and like Hong Kong went well beyond just like the charter city as a whole, but because these had like lots of big populations, um, the institutions before were like incredibly like repressive on economic activity before. Um, so Hong there's like Kong? lots of... That would be true for Hong Kong? Uh, yeah, I guess not Hong Kong as much, but definitely with the Shenzhen example, which I still think is like the main cited case study. Right, um, right. Yeah, that it's like difficult and yeah. possibly worth some some more empirical investigations as well. Okay, so we have talked about development policy in developing countries Another major cause of poverty, um, according to Brian Kaplan, is bad immigration policy Mm -hmm. in uh, developed rich countries. Uh, Why? What's going on there? 
Right. Well, here's what we can see with our own eyes. You can take a person from a desperately poor country, move him into the first world, and in a very short amount of time, he suddenly is earning 10 times or 20 times as much money as he was earning in his home country. Right. This is quite shocking, right? Because one story that people often tell is people are poor in poor countries because they lack human capital. But then we move the human from one place to another and we say, huh, it doesn't look like the human capital was that big of a deal because it's true that when you move a very low-skilled worker to the first world, he doesn't immediately start earning the average amount in that country or even the median amount, but he still has an enormous improvement relative to where he was. So it looks like a lot of the problem is just being in the wrong country rather than being the wrong kind of person. And so much of this is what's causing poverty. Mm -hmm. Now, then the question is, gee, well, if we know how to do this, why aren't we doing vastly more of it? Why is immigration so strictly regulated? Right. Because in practice, unless you are very high skilled or you have some other special trait like close family in a first world country, it's almost impossible to come. Right. Even countries that pride themselves on their generosity to migrants, it's really just a very small amount of refugees they let in. And other than that, uh, no, thank you. Uh, you. Absolutely not. You can't come. So. A starting point here is it seems like this is a really obvious solution to poverty and one that is demonstrably effective. So look, just take the poor people, let them go to a rich country, and the problem has, by global standards, been solved overnight. All right, so this has been very motivating to me. And then there is this puzzle of why is it that we don't do more of it? One answer is that this is only looking at the micro level, and if we did it at a large scale, then it would kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, and that's a lot of what I actually work on. And my, my result in the end is it really just doesn't look like that. It looks like, rather, this is a case where you just get a bigger goose that lays more and bigger gold eggs. Right, so that is my, my general story, where we can talk about that in a lot more detail. And then we come back to my usual myth of the rational voter story, which is this tremendous opportunity that people are extremely stubborn and dogmatic and saying, no way, we refuse to consider, even though the benefits seem to be so enormous. All right. And finally, there's also the story of this would be as great for the world, but it's bad for the receiving country. So it's basically that this is a kind of redistribution that is positive some, but nevertheless, there's a negative burden that is borne by the receiving country. And so that's why it doesn't happen. All right, so we, we can talk about all these possibilities if you want. It might be worth, before we dive into criticisms, just to kind of restate this positive case for yes, yes. because it's so right. strong, surprisingly strong and often yes. people don't have a sense of how right. strong it is. One framing maybe is, you know, several people have um, thought about the effect on just world output if yes. every country right, right. what is it once uh, what's the result? yes right so just to back up there's a whole body of economics that tries to estimate what are the gains of removing barriers to international trade and most of these estimates are actually fairly modest because the world isn't that far away from free trade and goods so often you'll get a result saying well if we could go from where we are to full fully free trade and goods then maybe we could raise gross world product gwp by 2 or 3% and you say oh that's only 2 or 3% it's 2 or 3% times the production of humanity so that's actually a lot. I would love to have 2 or 3% of the production of humanity at my disposal, right? I would be the richest person who ever lived. Now, when people have done exactly the same math for free trade and labor, they have come up with enormous numbers, not a gain of 2 or 3%, but more along the lines of a gain of 100% to GWP, gross world product. And the reason is twofold. First of all, we are so far away from having free trade and labor that deregulation is a much larger change 
than it would be for free trading goods. And second of all, it affects such an enormous market because labor is something like 70% of the world economy. So if you go and deregulate an enormously important market that is currently being truly strangled by regulation, the gains that you get coming out of a simple trade model are genuinely astronomical. Again, it's something like adding 100% to gross world product. So as I was saying, even getting 2 or 3% increase in gross world product is pretty great. But getting a 100% gain in gross world product is truly off the charts. This is the largest estimate of the gain to mankind of any policy change that has ever been published, as far as I know. And again, you know, like, like, how could this possibly be? Well, just imagine moving all the people that are earning $500 a year to a place where they'll suddenly earn 20000 a year. And then, and you realize, and there's a lot of people like that, right? Now, again, if you think about pay as being just a kind of redistribution, then you'll say, well, this is just you know, moving around who gets the income. Mm-hmm. But again, this is, this is very basic economics. There is a tight connection between people's productivity and their wages. There's a reason why Tom Cruise makes a lot more money than an extra. There's a reason why farmers in countries of mechanized agriculture make a lot more, more than farmers that do primitive subsistence agriculture. And it's when productivity is high, wages are high, they go together. The key idea then uh, is that right now we are trapping an enormous amount of human talent in low productivity countries for no good reason. And if it were allowed, then a lot of this talent would move to richer countries and realize this gain, which rather than being something that is bought at the expense of the native population is something that is added to the production of humanity. Mm. So I often like to say if there's one single fact about economics that I wish everybody would know, and I would give up all my other influence if I could make the entire (laughs) world know this one slogan. And the slogan is the secret of mass consumption is mass production. The secret of mass consumption is mass production. Countries that are rich are countries that are productive. Countries that are poor are countries that are unproductive. This works across countries. It works over time. It works in the rate of change. So it is like just a general fantastic story. And and furthermore, um, when we go and step back at the broad sweep of human history, we can say, yes, when the, sometimes there is an increase in production of one particular thing that is primarily beneficial for just a few people and might actually be harmful for a lot of others. Mm-hmm. But whenever we have a large increase in production, then historically it has always been broadly beneficial. You know, the Industrial Revolution did not just benefit factory owners and factory workers. It benefits everybody that's consuming the bountiful products coming out of those factories. Mechanization of agriculture did not just benefit tractors manufacturers. The internet did not just benefit computer programmers. Vaccines did not just benefit pharmaceutical companies. Instead, these are cases where it is a large increase in production, which means that there is such a flood of abundance that everybody, well, almost everybody, winds up getting a substantial gain. And yet, while this is obviously true for industrialization or information technology, the idea that letting in a whole bunch of low-skilled immigrants in your country, which will then raise the production of humanity and will then redound to the benefit of not only the migrants but the people in the receiving country, is one that people suddenly become ultra-skeptical of. You must say, look, this is just like all of the other big improvements in, uh, in human productivity. Why is this the one that you think is not going to work out for you? Yeah, one point here is when I was kind of first getting to groups with this, idea of this like massive boost in in um, production is that I was thinking of it in terms of just dollars, right? So I can maybe 5x my income if I move from a low-income country to a rich country. And that's that's good, but also my $5 will go less far in this rich country. It's also like nice to reframe this in terms of just what's happening to like stuff in the world. So if I'm a farmer, 
I can in fact make far more food in a rich country because oh, yes. of all this capital in place. It's kind of, I guess, yes. worth just... Right, and, and not, but not just technology, it's man- management. Going right. back to the John yeah. Van Rienen point, so much of it is, you know, you can just go and send those physical goods to Mexico, send the machinery, and yet often mm. like it doesn't actually work out so well. You get something out of it, but maybe the machinery goes to waste or it gets mismanaged, uh, like the machinery isn't properly maintained. It's combining the uh, what we think of as technology with the social technology of management that is really the winning formula for production. Mm-hmm. Okay, so pretty strong case, prima facie, for open borders. You mentioned a few criticisms. Mm-hmm. Let's go through a couple of them. One you mentioned was that immigrants from poor to rich countries benefit, but the country they're leaving behind mm-hmm. lose out. Yeah, so this is totally logically possible because it is bad to go and lose a, lose, lose a bunch of prime age workers. Uh, however, there are some offsetting gains most notably remittances. So it's very common for people to send money back home. Uh, But there's also other gains like increases in business connections and so on. Uh, People often go and work in another country and then retire, or they may only work seasonally and then go and live in their country of origin. Now, in order to actually resolve this, we need to say, all right, so what's the net effect? And here we actually do have a few nice experiments so the one that I know the most about is Puerto Rico. So here you have a very poor country taken over, well, taken over by the U.S. in a war of aggression against Spain uh, under totally trumped-up charges, as it turns out. But in any case, 1902, the U.S. Supreme Court case, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that there are open borders between Puerto Rico and the U.S. Uh, it took about 100 years before there were more people of Puerto Rican descent in the mainland United States than in Puerto Rico. But in any case, you can go back and you can see Puerto Rico is basically the richest part of the entire Caribbean, richest island in the Caribbean. So net effects looked like it was actually very good for Puerto Rico. Now, Puerto Rico would be the poorest U.S. state if it were a state. But again, the relevant comparison, I say, is to the other Caribbean islands that are around it. Same thing for French and French Guiana, and there's some other similar cases. So uh, now on the other deeper point, and since uh, if you are an effective altruist, this should make a lot of sense to you, is that, well, who are you really trying to help, people or countries? So suppose that you open up the border to Haiti and then everyone in Haiti leaves and then there's just an empty land there. It's like, well, one could say the problem has been solved. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes, on the one hand, Haiti is now has a GDP of zero. On the other hand, the Haitians are all doing fine in another uh, in another part of the world. Right. Uh, realistically, that's not going to happen because some people are just stubborn and won't leave. And also, like, once it got to that level, it does seem like there would be some expat Haitians coming back and buying things up and transforming things for the better. Mm. Although it might need to get down to they're, da- they're down to 5% of their population before someone can really come back and make some magic happen. Mm. And maybe it gets also to your point, right, of like voting with your feet. Yes, uh, yes. Thing. Like yes. I really love the, mm-hmm. the paper or the book, I should say, Exit Voice and Loyalty, right, by Hirschman. And that has often been applied to the emigration context as well, right, yeah, sure. that you shouldn't be able to prevent people from leaving. Right, right. So it might actually be enough to convince the government of Haiti to get its act together, mm. right, which is, of course, on the, sto- on the theory that the government of Haiti knows how to do it and just doesn't want to. And I think there's at least a good amount to that, right? Or possibly, so they might, they, it wouldn't even shock me if behind closed doors, the, many people in, in government in Haiti would say, look, we know what to do, we want to do it, but we'll lose office if we do it. The other criticism you mentioned is this worry about killing the goose that lays the golden yes. eggs. Yeah, maybe worth spelling that out. I guess it has something to do with the way sure. that newer immigrants would vote. That's the most obvious version. So imagine that 
you or Luxembourg and you're considering opening up your borders to Venezuela, and as soon as they show up, they'll all be able to vote, right? A person might flee Venezuela, not because they've correctly diagnosed what's wrong with Venezuela, but just because they know that things suck there and they don't suck in Luxembourg. And the native Luxembourgians could be easily totally overwhelmed by the people fleeing from Venezuela, and they might be voted into disaster. So I mean, this is the nightmare scenario. And then there's the question about how reasonable is it, right? So the easy answer is, well, it depends upon a bunch of factors, depends upon the relative size of the sending country and the receiving country and how bad policy is in the receiving country and how bad policy is in the sending country. I've focused a lot of this on the United States because there are a lot of critics of immigration who basically speak as if immigrants in the United States are really ready to go and vote us into Venezuela. Mm. Um, so when you go and look at the data, which most of the people make this argument never bother to do, I just say that is just untrue. Uh, so there are some modest differences in the policy views between native, you know, native-born Americans and foreign-born Americans, but it's not any kind of a night and day difference. So basically it comes down to foreigners are a little bit more socially conservative, a little bit more economically liberal in the American sense, but again, not any kind of a night and day difference. And then furthermore, I say, if you go and take a look, you'll see that voter turnout for immigrants is very low. So usually when you migrate to another country, you're not eager to vote it into the country you came from. Usually you're not very interested in voting at all. You're focused on getting your life together and figuring out how to make your way in a new world. And then what was very striking is that voter turnout is especially low for low education foreign-born voters who are the ones whose views are, at least to me, most disturbing. They're the ones who are most socially conservative, most economically liberal, though even that is not an enormous difference. Uh, and then finally, here's the really key part, is that when you look at political, assimila- political assimilation of the kids of immigrants, it seems like assimilation really is quite high. So realistically, then, you don't actually get a million immigrants show up overnight. Instead, what happens is that you get a steady flow. Often there is, in fact, a snowball, or uh, this is what economist Paul Collier talks about in his book, Diaspora. Although for him, this is a reason to be worried about immigration, saying that even if it doesn't seem like it's too much right now, it's going to spiral out of control. I say, no, no, this is the reason why it's actually great, because there's really two scary scenarios for the social science of immigration. One scenario is the entire world shows it tomorrow. And then I think there is, there's plenty of good reason to be scared. At minimum, that many people would just clog the streets and would shut down the entire transportation system and your country would starve to death. So you don't want that. You don't want a billion people showing up overnight, right? You need time to go and get the jobs for them and get the housing for them and so on. On the other hand, though, you don't want it to be the case that very few people want to come in the, uh, you know, at all because all these estimates about saying there are very large gains come from assuming that billions of people would come, right? What this Paul Collier argument about diaspora dynamics saying that immigration snowball says is two things. First of all, it won't be an instant flood. Rather, it will be a gradual snowballing so that it, we won't have the short-run problems of being flooded with immigrants to the point where they shut down the roads. But on the other hand, in the long run, we will have billions that want to come. Right. And so actually, though he doesn't see it this way, I see he's actually come up with one of the best arguments for open borders because it comes down to in the long run, we will get the long run benefits and in the short run, we will not have the short run costs that a pessimist would imagine. And instead, immigration builds on builds of its own momentum. In terms of why it would work this way, the usual stories along the lines of it is scary to be the first person from one country to move to another country. 
you're all alone, you don't have any social ties, maybe they don't even speak the language. But once the f- bravest people make the plunge and do move, then there's the second bravest group that can say, hey, I can go live with my cousin, he can help me get a job. And then there's the third bravest wave. And then finally, you actually have a whole community. And from there, it does tend to actually snowball in this way where it gets bigger and bigger. You know, you know, you have, you have that visual image of the snowball. I know you don't have a lot, you, know, you don't have a lot of snow in the UK, but a little snowball starts and then it builds and builds. And finally, by the end, it's this enormous amount of snow. Or, yes. We'll include an image of, of snow uh, for UK listeners. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, we were talking about this worry about the way that new immigrants might vote. What about this parallel worry just about how culture might mm-hmm. change in both countries, right? Mm-hmm. So this kind of two-directional transfer of perspectives and ideas. There's a worry about the new balance that you get. I don't know how you start to think about that. Right. I mean, here's the main way that I think about it. Right now, the usual view on planet Earth is that Westernization is winning. And there are a lot of countries that don't think of themselves as Western, where their governments are pretty desperately trying to stop it and not succeeding that well unless they use extremely draconian methods. So what I say is this shows that market demand is spoken and most of the world does in fact want to westernize. In a fair contest, Western culture will do very well indeed, although it won't have a total victory. There'll be a bunch of other things that we wind up adopting from other countries and who knows, maybe they have something useful to teach us. So I was talking to a Chinese student last night and we're talking about Chinese Americans and I say, yeah, well, second generation Chinese Americans, I'd say from the point of view of their parents, there's an enormous assimilation. But from the point of view of native-born Americans, they may say, well, but there's still some differences. That's where I say, yeah, maybe some of those differences are actually an improvement. So, you know, they're, they're doing very well in a lot of ways. Maybe we have something to learn from them. Um, maybe there's some, in, you know, some things and not just cuisine, which is almost everyone can say, hey, let's try their food and see how good it is. But maybe they've got some better ideas on how to have a stable family, for example, that are being lost in the native-born culture in the U.S., Uh, In terms of the assimilation of immigrants that have already been here, my general view is that you have the contrast between actual data and real life and and the media. So the media is always going to go and show you the scariest stories. You know, this is the son of two Western educated immigrants who became a fundamentalist and fought for the Taliban. All right. All right. Well, where are the stories about all of the kids of conservative Muslim parents who actually became very Westernized and aren't interested in fundamentalist Islam? That's not going to be much of a story. So there is a uh, another professor that I know, or actually I guess now he's working uh, working in policy analysis. He did actually come up with an estimate of the rate of Muslim apostasy in the UK. And I recall his estimate was about 25% per generation, which when you think about what religion is like, 25% per generation is an extremely high rate of apostasy. And that's real apostasy. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's actual apostasy, where you keep saying, yes, 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 I'm so very much a member of this group, but again, you don't really go to church, you don't follow the rules, you aren't interested in it, and you aren't making much of an effort to pass it on to your kids. So I say the real story in the UK is very likely that you are assimilating people at a very high rate, and especially ones that you think of as being very hard to assimilate are still assimilating a high rate, but nevertheless, people tend to dwell on both the horrifying exceptions as well as to blow moderate differences out of proportion, like they're dressing more very conservatively. All right, well, you know, there's some natives who dress conservatively too. I mean, in terms of cultural change, 
I did an earlier podcast with Andrew Sullivan. I don't know if you know who he is. He spent a lot of time, uh, you know, he actually more than once, he went and did his impression of his brother. And now I'm going to do my impression of Andrew doing his impression of his brother. <laughs> so, you know, Andrew, London's not England anymore. All right, so I've just been in London, and I guess I know what Andrew's brother is talking about. But on the other end, big deal, it's fine. I don't know what is your complaint about London. All right, yeah, so there's lots of cool stuff happening there, and a lot of it would have seemed weird to Winston Churchill, but so what? It's, pa- it's passing the market test, and a lot of people like it. So, you know, I often think about my dad. So my dad's 83, right? And how do you think he feels about modern culture? Is he happy and turning on the TV and say, oh, great, everything's going my way? No, my dad hates how things are going, right? And I got to say, well, look, the only way for you to have kept your culture was for me to have not been allowed to develop mine, (laughs) right? The only way that old people can feel like things stay the way they want is to prevent young people from exploring new options and trying new things. And to me, this cultural change over time within a culture is very comparable in magnitude, probably actually larger in recent decades than the change that you get from migrants. I would say most people have more in common with immigrants of their own age than they have with their parents 50 years older than them, say 30 years older than you. Uh, So certainly than your grandparents. And your grandparents are almost by definition part of the same culture as you. Mm. And yet someone born in another country or whose parents are born in another country, you feel more in sync with them is definitely my experience. Mm. Yeah, and it's definitely really interesting how much culture plays a role here, right? And we definitely saw this here in the UK with like the Brexit debates and everything. The other topic, which I think we've talked about, but is kind of, I guess, an invitation for you to maybe delve into more depth is this discussion of how immigrants affect wages. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a very rich literature here in economics as well. Yeah, basically an invitation for you to, to talk about this if you Great. want to. Right. So remember when I was saying the number one principle of economics is the secret of mass consumption is mass production. So I'm going to say that here as well. So if you have a change in the economy that leads to a large increase in production, it's clearly going to be good for the living standards of a large majority of the population. Now, uh, people that have actually done research specifically on wages, so remember, wages are not the only source of income for people. You may say, well, well what, what if like people with their stock portfolios, how about people who own homes? Or people who are going to inherit a home from someone who currently owns a home. And then you realize, oh, actually, even people you think of as not being very rich have a bunch of non-wage sources of income. But anyway, thinking about the effect on overall standard of living, this is one where the effect of immigration, like the effect of industrialization or mechanization of agriculture or vaccines or IT, it's all quite clear. Now, when people have specifically looked, okay, but what happens to, say, a particular city or state or subregion when there's a large increase in the amount of immigrants there? So... And say the consensus estimate in literature is something along the lines of an elasticity of like negative 0.1, which basically means that if immigration raises the population of the area by 1%, wages go down by about 0.1%. Or even simpler, how if immigration raises the population area by 10%, wages for the people already there goes down by about 1%, which is, of course, an extremely small change in the broad scheme of things. Now, what else can we say about this? Well, One of the main problems with doing it this way is normally there is an assumption that the effect is the same for all people of the same education level. So it's very standard just to go and do things the easy way. And social scientists are, of course, guilty of this, just like everybody else. So if you have a data set that splits people up into less than high school, high school, some college, college graduate, and and then more, then you say, okay, that's five categories. Let's go and split the data set up into five categories and then estimate separately the effect of immigration on each 
of these. Right now, when you do it that way, um, for these immigration that has happened, what you'll see is that we've had especially large amounts in the United States, especially large amounts of greater than bachelor's degree education. These are the people that get in as under high skilled. And then less than high school, these are generally ones getting under illegal immigration, right? And then we see, ah, so actually by this approach, wages have gone up for all three middle education groups and are lower just for these other two, because basically uh, it is bad for you when people are selling the same product or selling the same products that you sell. But on the other hand, it's very good when they sell the products that you buy. Mm. Right. So I often say there is one group of immigrants that has been terrible for me, and this is foreign born economics professors, <laughs> right, who are probably like half of all of the economics professors at the top level of the profession. Right. So we can imagine the job that I could have in a world without them. There's a nice point as well that academia is surprisingly open for various reasons. Yes, yes, yes. There, there is but an enormous loophole. Yeah, yeah. That, it's funny because how many times I've heard people say, well, it's easy for a professor like you that doesn't have anything to worry about from immigration to say all this. Like, doesn't have anything to worry about it. I'm in one of the very few industries that actually practices what I preach. On the other hand, though, when an Afghan restaurateur comes to my area, this does not compete with me. Mm-hmm. This does not reduce my wage. This actually increases my wage. But anyway, uh, what some economists have done is say, well, look, actually, we should think about this a little bit more deeply because there's actually a big difference between, say, a Pakistani high school dropout and an American-born high school dropout. This is one where they sort of redone these previous results, but said there's going to be different effects for, at least there could be different effects for natives versus foreign-born. And then they they get an even stronger result, which is that natives generally gain, regardless of education level, rather the effect of immigration on wages is borne by the last wave of immigrants, the ones that are most similar to the new ones, right? In that case, some people say, well, then we should feel really sorry for them. And so, <laughs> hmm. So once they're here, you feel really sorry for them, but until they're here, you don't care about them at all. But in any case, actually, one of the groups that is least opposed to open borders is precisely recent immigrants probably partly because they have friends and family they want to let in. And maybe they actually even identify with strangers who are in the same situation as they are. Mm. So anyway, I would say that, you know, the most pessimistic scenario is there's some very slight effect of immigration on wages, which again is not the only effect on standard of living. So it's important to keep that in mind and just keep in mind things like when you're elderly, do you want to be able to keep living at your own home? If you've got cheap elder care services, then you can probably do that. On the other hand, if you don't let in lower skilled workers to go and do those jobs, then maybe you're going to be stuck in a nursing home. So, well, you can gild the lily, but the basic fact of you're stuck in an institutional living setting and you're not in your own home Mm -hmm. and like, how can you really ever get over that? It's pretty bad. One quick question here. The explanation I assume you're giving for why rich countries don't open their borders, given that there's a pretty strong case they'll do extremely well from this, is the kind of irrational votes yes, yes. point. Why don't non-democratic countries open their borders? Well, Wasn't that's a China great question. So, so, well, so guess what? All the countries that do have really open borders are dictatorships of the Gulf monarchies. So 85% of the population of Kuwait is foreign-born. Hmm. All right. I don't think this would happen democratically. I mean, it probably also has something to do with how those 15% of native-born citizens get cut in on the oil money and the 85% don't. The other thing is that dictators usually want to be popular too. Right. So there are, of course, some that have a rule with such an iron fist. And again, especially those aforementioned cults of fanatics. Mm. But most dictators don't want to rule with such brutality. They want to use it as more of at least not at least not a first resort. They want to have some kind of, of affection from the population. So they're competing for that. Uh, the after the Gulf monarchies, I would say the best country for immigration is Singapore which I deny is a dictatorship, say actually international agencies say that they have fair and free elections.
elections. So that's the democracy in my book. A lot of it is they just get ranked as not being a democracy because official democracy indices usually incorporate a number of specific results they think that democracies ought to adopt, such as the particularities of libel and slander law. So Singapore does have some unusual libel and slander law. It actually is the same as your UK law without an exception for public figures. Huh. And so, like, in both countries, well, like, when you say something, the other person can sue you and make you prove that it's true. But in the UK, at least, there's an informal understanding that a politician can't make someone prove that their accusations against them were true. And in Singapore, like, Lee Kuan Yew actually did this, and he did bankrupt some journalists. They said, you call me corrupt, prove I'm corrupt. All right, do it in court. Where's the proof? And then they couldn't do it, and then they lost their houses. But this is basically just UK law enforced strictly without this exception for public figures. I don't know how you arrange this exception for public figures. So U.S. Supreme Court eventually just said, well, come on, you know, you're a public figure. You have to, you know, you can't take the heat to get out of the oven as to how this is not appear in any of the legal documents. But, you know, somehow they just said, eh, you know, which is a lot of how the U.S. Supreme Court works is rule by, eh. Rules rather than <laughs> yeah. Those, yeah. I remember reading about Lee Kuan Yew's strong opinions about air conditioning. <laughs> come across this. Yes, yeah, so, you know, so like, I mean, it wasn't just him. There's a whole book called Air Conditioning Nation about how air conditioning was very important for the development of Singapore. Yeah. Uh, I was there for a week. It's plausible. I think I, it's true. Yes, just in yes. general, air conditioning is a kind of underrated development factor or something. Yes. Um, okay, let's talk a bit about totalitarianism, just to take a hard left turn. Um, you wrote about the risk of global totalitarianism, mm-hmm. stable totalitarianism as well, um, a few years ago. A few things have changed along technological lines, maybe more sophisticated gene technology. Mm-hmm. Um, have you updated on how likely you think totalitarian mm. world takeover could be? I mean, I guess I would say that I have been at least somewhat impressed by how the government of China has really mar- married its repression to information technology. Mm-hmm. So just being able to use facial recognition technology, for example, to find people in protests, being able to go and use AI to scour the internet of material that is critical of the government. So again, I would still say that what China is doing now is nothing compared to what Mao did with sticks and stones, you know, much more primitive and yet vastly harsher. You know, a lot of what I said in that piece is really echoing Orwell. Like the main constraint on, on totalitarianism is competition. So if other countries are not totalitarian and you are, then you really do risk falling behind in the geopolitical race and becoming at least irrelevant or maybe just crushed by uh, other countries that are allowing the continuation of the development of knowledge and the free flow of ideas. Uh, so in terms of likelihood for world government, I consider this quite a long shot over even the medium run, over even the course of a century. As for whether what events have made me think, I would say probably moved me just a little bit more in the direction of thinking it's not even a century is uh, is highly unrealistic. So I'd say that you know, there has been a bit of a move away from internationalism, which was always quite frail. And again, while there's a lot of good things about cosmopolitanism, there is this risk of if we really did get to one world government, then the competition's gone, right? And then if that one world government gets bad, then what do you do? Do you leave the planet? Uh, so I guess if you're the future humanity, you may be planning for, uh, for, get, for, for getting off of Earth, but that still seems quite remote. Uh, I, th- I think we'll have global totalitarianism before we have a million human beings living off the Earth. It's a kind of an awkward point because... There's a tension here. If you care about catastrophic risks in particular, some of those risks might well be mitigated by some kind of stronger global government. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least kind of coordination and cooperation. 
Uh, but you're pointing to a risk from more yeah. kind of strength and on balance, which way do you lean? Yeah. So, you know, I lean from, I'm more worried about high centralization in terms of the main, the main global risk that people are talking about of global warming. I know that probably isn't the main one that hardcore cost benefit analysts are worried about, but this is one where I you do think that the case for geoengineering is uh, is is quite strong, and it's and again like the international coordination. I just don't. I think that's not. I, I think that things are going to get very bad long before there's any kind of effective international coordination. In the end, events will just force our hand, and we'll do geoengineering, which it, it, it is it is the best of the best of the options. It's one that seems highly effective, cheap. So you know, it's uh, that is almost canonical effective altruism, yeah, yeah. right? And, and then you know, furthermore, these one where we will start doing experiments, um, not right away, but when things start getting bad, this is one where it's not that we're just going to immediately go and send out a sun blotting out dose of, sul- of sulfur and then see what happens. Yeah, <laughs> Instead, yeah. it will be done in a measured way. And then people will say, all right, well, we got it down by 0.01 degrees. Good. Now it's going up the dose a little bit. Yeah. So, and then in terms of the other ones, so I guess, you know, like, honestly, the catastrophic risk that worries me the most is this nuclear war. Yeah. Right. And that's one where I would say, look, once you had global, global government, I wouldn't be worried about nuclear war. But I think the only way you're going to get to global government is nuclear war. And so you're going to cause the very problem that you are trying to stop. So don't. Yeah. I, I find this like intersection, I guess, between institutions and technologies really interesting. And there's similar to what Finn said, like an awkward tension here, right? Between these like new technologies, which seem kind of on the periphery. And then this big question of, okay, well, what will this mean for global governance or global coordination? On the one hand, you mentioned about how China is able to use AI and facial recognition. And you can see these technologies, um, especially AI, right? Yes. Really strengthening these totalitarian yes. regimes. But then on the other hand, if you look at some other technologies, for example, bio-risk or somebody just being able to release the next COVID yes, yes. engineered, then mm-hmm. you also need more surveillance, right? On some mm-hmm. degree as well. There's definitely mm-hmm. like a pull there. And this is also like a big tension that kind of seems unanswered at the moment. Okay, we're going to change direction pretty abruptly again. Um, so in 2012, you wrote this book about reasons to have more kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of people read it. And I imagine some people were convinced and had mm-hmm. more children. Um, how many extra children currently alive do you think that book is responsible for? My best guess is something like 300. Right. So there is actually a YouTube video of a guy and his daughter thanking me for convincing him to have her, which first is sort of like a message from beyond the grave. Like, no, it's the exact opposite. It's a message from non-existence. Mm. Right. So it's the voice that would not have been. Mm. But for this. So, I mean, I've had a lot of people talk to me. I've also done some Twitter polls just saying, like, how many kid, extra kids have I convinced you to have? And this is one where the selection bias is not an issue because I'm trying to get a count rather than a population estimate. So, you know, of course, uh, could be that people are lying just to make me feel good. But I tend to think there's a lot more people that I haven't heard of who've been influenced than who have lied in order to make me feel good. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of people in the world, presumably, who are kind of responsible in some mm-hmm. sense for more lives. But mm-hmm. uh, unusual that you can trace it so directly. Yes, what yes. does it feel like? Yes. Well, it's it's one of the best feelings in the world. My words bring life upon the world. Like yes. Mini yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, they're actually, they're mini versions of their parents. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not creating more kids the old-fashioned Genghis Khan way or anything, but... <laughs> right. um, yeah, so I guess there's a link to immigration here, which is if you think things are going well in a country, you want to have more people in the country. And one way to do that is for people to move. Um, another way is to have more children in that country. Um, 
you might also think the same thing if you're fond of a certain kind of perspective or ideology, right? And we know things about fertility rates for different countries and different <laughs> ideologies. Um, some of our listeners are partial to this view of long-termism, where you're like especially concerned with how things go in the very long run, mm -hmm. you know, over the course of at least centuries. And I guess just trivially, the further out you look, the more it matters mm -hmm. how many people there are who mm -hmm. kind of resemble your views. Is it just a really strong case if you prefer more people in the world and a greater share of the world to share your views or certain kind of ethical views just to go and have more kids? I think it is, it is underrated. I mean, strictly speaking, I would still say that you would probably be able to do more by not having kids yourself and then doing the earning to give thing and where you then take the earnings and use it to incentivize other people to do it. High leverage. Yeah, 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 yes. Yes. So basically, you know, to have your own kid, that is probably going to cost you several hundred thousand dollars. But based upon what we know about people's marginal willingness to have kids, you could probably actually incentivize the creation of 10 more kids for that cost. Yeah, actually, how, how, just on the empirics, like how easy is it to incentivize more Kids, yeah. just from a policy perspective. Right. So it's very common to say, oh, the research says that it doesn't work. I say this is not a correct reading of the research. So there are a few very good experiments where they actually did, you know, check all of the boxes of very good social science where you've got you know, very random treatments and, you've, and, you've, and you're looking at very, a lot of different subgroups. And you know, my memory is that actually you know, at the margin, really you can actually get the marginal version of another kid for – Maybe $25,000, actually. Mm -hmm. So again, basically, this comes from targeting people that are whose fertility is responsive, and you give it to them, right? So, and actually, like, like you know, for example, like married, mar married couples have, you know, have more responsive fertility to incentives than single parents. You talked about like kind of monetary incentives. Mm -hmm. There's also other incentives that people have been toying with. And one of the incentives that we came across recently whilst um, doing some research is this idea of demony voting, where you basically give parents like an extra vote to vote for their children ah, okay. as a way to yes. like, I guess, uh -huh. <laughs> endogenize, right, the process of getting like pro-family uh -huh. or pro-natalist yes. policies. I just wonder if you have any thoughts on this at all. I doubt that would have very much effect on fertility in terms of whether it's a reasonable policy tend to think that it would make policy a little bit better overall, although I'd really need to go and look more closely at public opinion by, you know, by, by parental status. So something that actually I think would have a much larger effect would be if your government pension were based upon your fertility, right? So say, look, you have no kids. Well, then you're getting a very minimal pension because you did not contribute to the long run viability of the system. On the other hand, if you've got four kids like Brian, then yeah, you know, thank you very, thank you for your service. And here's a much, lar a much larger amount. Again, and, you know, th there's obviously that is a bit of a ham-fisted way of doing it, but it does yeah. seem uh, more reasonable than what we're currently doing anyway. And there's the question of, you get credit for those 300 kids when it comes to your pension. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in my case, absolutely. There should, there should be a little writer in the legislation saying if you've written a natalist book, you get... <laughs> this is a case where I guess your population ethics kind of matters if you care about mm. doing good. Yes. So, as yes. I'm sure you're aware, you know, mm -hmm. we can be pretty confident about how much it costs, at least to have a ceiling mm -hmm. on how much it costs mm -hmm. to save a life. And it sounds like we also have some guess about how much it costs to yeah. create a future life um, where you spend your money in that. Yeah, so, you know, so in terms of effective altruism, I still say that it seems a lot cheaper to save a life that already exists than to create a new life. If you go and put different values on, years, on the year at which you are living, there's that. Although I think it also is very reasonable to say that people that don't exist yet don't get missed in the same way that people that currently exist to then die. 
especially prematurely. So I was actually going into population ethics during COVID, and I am very firmly of the view that it is much worse when young people die than when old people die. And I think it's crazy to believe anything else. And yet some people are getting very upset and they're saying, look, I am one of the older people. And I say, like, my life is not as valuable as yours for multiple obvious reasons. You know, I have fewer years left to live. I, like, I would be missed less than you would be. And then, of course, just the quality of life goes down when you, when you were older, just like, like level of chronic pain and so on. Like, when I'm doing this interview, I'm thinking, gee, I hope my back doesn't hurt after this. When I was your age, I didn't worry about stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right. So, yeah, my, no, don't worry. My quality of life is still very good right now. But when I, when I look at the quality of life of many people at 80, like, you know, seems very reasonable for an effective altruist to say, like euthanasia or like, you know, the, the right of the right of suicide mm. is actually something you know, very important to defend because there are definitely people whose lives are actually quite terrible. And to go and force them to keep staying alive is something an effective altruist should be re- reasonably concerned about. Okay, last bonus question. What does Michael Humer get right that most people get wrong? What does Michael Humer get right? Yes, so philosopher Michael Humer of the University of Colorado. I'd say the main thing that he gets right is he actually has developed a teachable method of doing philosophy well. Which sounds almost impossible because think about philosophy, like every question in philosophy is just like a new thing and it's so complicated. And really his teachable method consists in this. First, you have to start with some premises that seem obvious to a wide range of people. Right? That's where you have to start. You can't start with something that only appeals to two people on earth, and not just your friends, but rather to a wide range of people where it would seem reasonable. And again, this goes to the very nature of an argument. The point of an argument is to persuade people. The way you persuade people is by starting at something that they agree with and then arguing them to something that is not obvious. So this is the first thing he does. And of course, a lot of philosophers really do the opposite thing. They begin very dogmatically with a fundamental principle that is always true. Only when you hear it, especially if it's you're just outside of the subculture people believe in, it doesn't sound far from obvious or often crazy. You know, Immanuel Kant saying you must always act in such a way that the maximum of your act could become a universal law of nature. It's like, like why that? Right? And it's like, well, that's just obvious. Like, no, it's not obvious. Not at all. Right? Anyway, it's very common in philosophy to begin with very dogmatically with a premise. And then next thing is to go into an argument so complicated that people forget that you started off at a place that didn't make a lot of sense in the first place. And you just distract people so that all their mental energy is focused on subparts of the argument. It's built on a house of cards, a premise that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people except those who have been heavily indoctrinated in this view. And Mike says, no, 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 that's not what you should do. You should start with something that would be obvious to a wide range of people and then see what you can get from there. Now, you might think that you could barely get anywhere from there, but a lot of what he does is show you can actually get very far from there. So his book, The Problem of Political Authority, begins with this question of, so someone decides, you know, tells me that I'm now no longer allowed to, say, smoke cigarettes. And then they go and I say, I'm going to keep smoking. And then they hold a gun to my head and say, no, you aren't. All right, would that be okay? And it's like, yeah, no, you can't do that. Say, well, what if a government does it? Is that okay? And then usually I say, yeah, yeah, well, if government says you can't smoke cigarettes, then you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes. Or maybe if it's a democratic government. And then he says, all right, so then what's the difference between just some guy saying it and a government saying it? 
And then he spends several chapters going through different stories about how it might be different. And the end, he really says, like, it just doesn't seem very different. So then you are actually at this position where you wind up saying, hmm, so maybe the authority of government is not actually legitimate. And uh, just because the government says that something is required doesn't mean that you're actually morally obliged to do it. So that's just one example that he has. But it, again, it's one where, again, it's not that he just has obvious conclusions. That would be not very interesting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But rather, he tries to get to get a starting point that seems obvious to a wide range of people and then very methodically move through to get to somewhere interesting, Right. So that's what I think is most remarkable about his work. You know, he's in the tradition of a few other well-known people. So especially Thomas Reed. So if you're up in Scotland, you've probably heard of him. Right. Uh, And then there's a few other people in in this line. But again, and it's again, it sounds kind of uh, like obvious, but also kind of vacuous. And like, can you really get a lot out of this? And what Mike shows through his applied work is you can get a lot out of this. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is so great about his work. And also it's just so well written and and, and again, like for someone whose views as extremists, it's so non-dogmatic. It doesn't give it isn't the feeling of I have found these truths and if you kneel before me, right? Instead, it's like, all right, let's find something that you agree with. And he's very good at this, actually, right? And then from there, let's see where we can move forward with this. And it's, you know, very con- very, very conversational. And again, and very good at anticipating what other people would say, and not just what other academic philosophers would say. But what would a wine rager people say about it, right? So he does have a new book out called, let's see, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, which is his – it's basically an introductory philosophy text or it is an introductory philosophy text. Well, I still think that his very best book is The Problem of Political Authority, which is one where I think it's very hard to read it with an open mind and not come away and say, wow – I've actually really learned a lot about how to think about political philosophy. And, you know, something else that's notable about most other philosophers is that when you start off at a rather dogmatic, dogmatic position and then you reason through it, often if you're, a, if you're very logical, you end up at a crazy conclusion like Immanuel Kant saying that you can't lie to save a human being's life. And then there's some very desperate effort to go and – and pretend that the result doesn't imply what it does or to go and say, well, I mean true lies, not regular lies. Only true lies are, are, are impermissible. It's not a true lie to say the children aren't in the basement because something, something. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, of course it's a lie. What are you talking about? Like, so there's this, 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 by the way, is also my favorite criticism of consequentialists is that rather than bite bullets, they will often twist facts to avoid having to bite bullets. Do you have an example? So, yes. Well, how about the uh, the population ethics one? So, as it does seem like, if you really, if, if we really were a you know, most most version, standard versions of consequentialists, that the main thing that you'd be doing with your time would be either trying to you know like having more kids or trying to encourage other people to have more kids or either that or spending almost all of your money on saving other people's lives. And yet, you know, it's not just that hypocritical people don't do this. No one really does this. Peter Singer doesn't do this. Right. So, which again, you know, so now again, like, you know, of course, there are some people despite the bullet and say I'm an evil hypocrite. Hmm. Although more common, like, I have, I, I've actually met more people who say, well, I don't know, I think I could do more good for the world by going skiing in Aspen. It's like, 
are you crazy? <laughs> like, what, what good does that do? Like, I come back feeling refreshed. It's like, I think you could have done pretty well just doing a much cheaper vacation and saving that money to go and help strangers. But look, the honest yeah. thing is you're not maximizing the overall good of the world. And now you're twisting the facts in order to pretend like you're true to the principle. So it's true that people who profess to taking this totalizing view don't behave as if they do. But are you just saying that people don't live up to their values, which is obviously true, rather than saying that this particular view is false? Uh, yes, so, you know, that, that, that is one route, and pe- some people do it. But I found it's more common for people to twist the facts, because it's easier to twist the facts than, see, to, yeah. than to confront and look in the mirror and say, yep, I'm, evil, I'm an evil hypocrite. Yeah, all the other people are hypocrites. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, you know, they're all evil hypocrites, and I'm not really doing that much different from they are, but I'm okay for some reason. <laughs> One question that we're starting to ask our our guests now, uh, and I think we really love, is just asking you, based on all the topics that we've discussed about and kind of touched upon here, is there anything that you would be really excited for people to build on the existing research or where you would like to see more work being done? Hmm. Let's see. Yeah. So, I mean, just coming back to where we started, getting to better measures of the quality of country's economic policies and better understanding of exactly what better policies cause, whether it's improving the level of income, the growth of income, the growth rate of the growth rate of income. So that would be good. Or just thinking about whether it makes more sense to focus on more disaggregated policies. Thinking about better ways of persuasion. So my book, Open Borders, is a nonfiction graphic novel. The main reason that I did it in that format was because I wanted to be more persuasive than I've ever been. And I think I did succeed. I think that was the most persuasive thing I've ever done, right? And I did it by combining a lot of different skills and approaches all at once. So combining words and pictures, but also being able to have the correct tone at all times in the book because the tone is actually being drawn by the artist who did my expression. I micromanaged the artist to say, make my smile. 3% bigger, that kind of thing. So, but figuring out better ways of persuading people to both be interested in and to care about the most important results that we've got. As a social scientist, I think we've got a great menu of strong results that would make an enormous difference for humanity. And yet getting actual people that have the power to do something about it to care is oh so hard. Mm. And I think the reason is just that it's hard to persuade people that it does matter and that the results are right. And just to figure out ways of improving persuasion. I mean, I've thought a lot about this. I did a big book club on Dale Carnegie's classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm. Um, Actually, I would like to see people doing the social science of that and saying, like, is Dale right? I think he like some of the stuff I'd be astounded if you were wrong. Yeah, Just yeah, things yeah. like, you know, become somebody's friend before you start trying to persuade them of things is if that isn't true, I don't know what could be true about dealing with other people. There's a good quote somebody once told me, which is people don't care how much you know until yes. they know how much you care. Yes, yes. Right. And then I, I meant that too, how much do you know that you care about them? <laughs> right. So just being a caring person in general doesn't that nearly matter as point. much as yeah, yeah. this is a person who likes me. Mm. Right. And, you know, if you can either have a friend who likes you or is super caring in general, <laughs> yeah, I think almost everyone goes with the person who likes them. Like, and again, what, you know, what Dale says is, you know, don't pretend to like people, learn to actually like them. Yeah. Uh, also, just to quickly flag that uh, Open Borders is like such an amazing and like kind of unique book and seems like a really cool way to communicate, as you said, social science and I guess science like more generally. Right. And by the way, I'm doing a follow up nonfiction graphic novel on housing deregulation called Build Baby Build, the Science and Ethics of Housing. Mm-hmm. And that one is coming along swimmingly. So I think we can have it for Christmas 2022. Is that also with like SNBC or who's drawing the uh, So no. Uh, for this one, I have a new artist. 
uh, that uh, you know is uh, doing you know doing a really good job with it. So his name is uh, you know, Adi Bronzai. So he's a Romanian artist. So Zach had another best-selling book uh, after he signed with me. So he's really hard to get. Now Zach is an is absolutely fantastic collaborator, wonderful human being, and you know just so much fun to work with. And this book was uh, soonish. Uh, yes, yeah, so so that book was also a New York Times bestseller. Mm. So. so they were both bestsellers. Why aren't there more picture books, nonfiction picture books? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so, I mean, I think a, you know, a lot of it is that you know, like it, it is hard to get someone who has the passion for the project, but also is really into the genre. So, I mean, there are a number of really good books along these lines. I mean, my favorite one, is, my favorite one is the, the series, the Cartoon History of the Universe. So, I don't actually know what the sales for that book were. I think it's, I think it did do very well. But, I mean, I think it would be great to go and throw away whatever textbooks you're using to teach history in the, in the UK and replace it with the Cartoon History of the Universe, which is a fantastic series. This makes me think in the UK... Horrible histories. We have a series of books. Yes, yes, horrible histories, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was looking into that a little bit, but I haven't had enough time to really delve into it. Well, at Warwick Castle, they have a whole maze inspired by horrible histories. <laughs> they had a TV show as well. And Great some of the songs yeah, we can we'll still link remember. To some of them in the right time. Um, yeah. Okay. So another question we ask all our guests is: What three books or films, articles, whatever, would you recommend to people who want to find out about the things you've been talking about? And also, what kind of most influential on you when you are thinking mm-hmm. about all this stuff? Yeah. So you know, of course, there's my own books, but uh, I will skip those. So yeah, Mike Humer's Problem of Political Authority. That's just such a model of not just political philosophy, but human thought. So I think I said about this book, if there were a book that could teach you how to think, it would be this book. Uh, so let's see, other things that have been very influential on me. So, you know, like, you know, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. This is a book that I actually read in high school, and it all seemed true to me, and it had no influence because I was not ready to listen. And then over the decades, I reinvented a lot of what he was saying, and then I read it and say, wow, why did I just not listen the first time, right? I mean, so much of it is just common sense, but... I mean, again, it's especially the kind of thing that people who care about their ideas and wonder why don't people listen to me, this is the book to read. It explains why people aren't listening to you. You need to be friendlier. And if that doesn't come naturally to you, you need to work on it because that's the only way that you're likely to be getting much interest in your work. So, you know, to be an ambassador for your views, to remember whatever I do or say reflects on my own views in the eyes of anyone who knows that I'm alive. You know, like, you know, so I really want to think about movies because I'm a huge movie fan. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a, a T-shirt from cult classic The Room. You may know it better through the movie about the movie, The Disaster Artist. But you know, you're, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. So yeah, one of the most quotable movies. I've done many midnight showings of it. In terms of you know how it's actually influenced me, I, mean, <laughs> I can't really. I mean, like the disaster artist, you know, like, it really does underscore the importance of friendship and bromance. I don't know if you have bromance here in the UK, but or if you have the concept, but it's just men being best friends. You know, like, there's the, there's the cismance of like two women being best friends, being great friends, and you know the value that brings to life. So, you know, I don't think about musicals, so. So many musicals where there's the song that's more persuasive than the idea itself. Uh, there's, one, there's one episode of The Simpsons where there's the song, We Put the Spring in Springfield. Um, yeah, so like a musical that's been on my mind a lot, and I just saw it in London the other day, is Hairspray, right? And uh, let's see, a bunch of great songs in that. So, uh, you know, It Takes Two and, uh, you know, Mama, I'm a Big Girl Now. You know, that's actually a good one, a good anti-paternalist song, if you uh, think, think of it that way. You know, Free Britney also fits in with that. 
Beautiful. The first musical recommendation. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, okay. The very last question is, where can people find you and your books? Yes. Yeah, so I would just say, you know, you can Google my name, uh, Brian with a Y, Kaplan with a C, or really... That's the easiest thing to do. Put in C-A-P-L-A-N into Google and you've got me. Brian Kaplan, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been great fun and especially fun to be in person. The way podcasts are meant to be. Thank you. That was Brian Kaplan on Causes of Poverty and the Case for Open Borders. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Brian. That's B-R-Y-A-N. They will find links to all the papers and books that were mentioned, along with some further reading and quotes from the interview. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's also a star rating form on the top and the bottom of the write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us to continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.